Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Good morning and welcome to Orange Crest Community Church. My name is Bryce and I'm the Connections Pastor here. Today is Father's Day. And so we want to recognize all the dads, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers out there today for the special role that they play in families. We want to appropriately honor them today. We also know that Father's Day for many can be a painful and difficult time. For some, there are strained relationships, there's hurt, there's loss of a loved one. It can just be a difficult time. And so we're going to turn to the Lord in prayer this morning and honor and understand the reality of Father's Day. So let's pray. God, we are grateful for you. We're grateful that you're our Heavenly Father. And we're grateful for the fathers of this life form. We pray, Lord, I pray especially for all the fathers um, in our church, that you would strengthen and encourage them to continue to set the pace in walking with you and living a life committed for you, Lord. Would you encourage them and help them as they try to do that? Would you help them have endurance and help? And Lord, for all those who are hurting because of Father's Day too, Lord, I just pray for your care and your comfort to be with them, Lord. Um, I pray that you would just help them to turn to you and just find the grace and help that comes only from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we're continuing on in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the next step on Solomon's journey is what we've been talking about each week is, is Solomon, who was a king in Israel. He wrote a lot of his reflections in life that were happened later on in life. And he, and he was telling us, don't miss this. Don't miss these really important things. And the step today that we're on is he's evaluating wise strategies and foolish strategies. That's what we're talking about today, is choosing wise strategies or foolish strategies in life. So when we don't consider these things, we don't consider the strategies that we choose to use in life, then we can easily lead a copy and paste life. So what this means, it means that this is a reactionary life. A copy and paste life is one that doesn't sit to carefully consider things very well, but just a life that just responds to the situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. We respond based on the innate desires in us and also just what we see happening from other people. And here's an example of what I mean. My daughter is young. She's three years old. Her name is Scotland. She's very cute. Right, But when my son, Levi, does something, it could be anything, she will immediately copy it. So let's say in his five-year-old energetic self, my son comes up and hits me because he often does, because I'm dad, and that seems to be what you do to dads as you hit them. Um, Scotty will see him, see what he does, and then will respond in kind. And she'll hit me as well. She grits her teeth and just lays it on really hard. She copies and pastes his action. Right? But it's not just kids. And although kids are really easy to see this happening, and they do it without really thinking very much, but we do the same thing. There's all kinds of situations and circumstances where we see what's happening in other people's lives. We think that makes a lot of sense. We don't really consider it, and we just copy and paste what they're doing into our life too. This is natural for us. But what Solomon is inviting us to do in this passage is to consider, is that the kind of life that we want to live? Do we want to live in a copy and paste way? Sometimes we need to pause and we need to evaluate and ask some uncomfortable questions 
that can cause us a lot of tension. And when we fail to sit in the tension, we live a copy and paste life. So when we fail to sit in that tension, that uncomfortable tension that comes when these hard questions arise, then we live a copy and paste life. And it's right and good to look at people's lives and imitate some of what they do. That's actually a very beneficial thing. But imitation without personal reflection, it lacks depth. It lacks conviction. It lacks a stick with itness or grit that's really necessary for a life that's lived committed to Jesus' ways. What God does for us in life is he invites us to try on different things, imitate the people that we see that are godly or they're doing the right things. But then the heat gets turned up. The heat, the difficulty gets turned up on us. And often if we don't take the time to reflect, then we can say, yeah, that just didn't work. I tried out God and that just didn't really work for me. On the alternative, though, we can choose to sit in the tension. We can say, God, I know your word told me to do this. I know your word says to do this. But this is what's happening. This is the outcome of what's going on. Will you help me understand what's going on? That's what it's like to sit in the tension. And that's what Solomon invites us to do today. So let's keep reading in Ecclesiastes so that we can see what it looked like for Solomon to sit in the tension with some of his questions. So let's start in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 17. It says this, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done already, or what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, meaningless. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, it's meaningless, and a striving after wind. So let me go back to verse 12, and we'll talk about that first. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. After, extending, after pursuing the extent of pleasure, which was last week's message, and if you haven't, then I encourage you um, to watch it if you haven't watched it already. But after he pursued the extent of pleasure, he said that didn't work out. That was meaningless. That was vanity. So next he says, well, okay, I'm going to look at pursuing wise and foolish strategies in life. In other words, what he's saying is, is it even worth it to pursue wisdom? Wisdom, is it possible to just pursue foolishness? So we're going to explore this area just like Solomon did. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at first, what is a strategy? What do we mean by that? And then we'll look at foolish strategies. And then we'll look at some wise strategies too. So first, what is a strategy? Here's the definition of a strategy. It's pretty simple. But it's a strategy, the methods a person uses to achieve a goal. So in this, in this description here, I think it's important to note that I'm separating out goals from strategies. Goals are kind of the end results, what we really want in a situation. But the strategy, all the methods 
that we use in order to achieve that goal. I think Solomon has in mind all of this, goals and strategies and what he's talking about, but we're going to pay careful attention to strategies themselves today. That's what we're really going to focus on. So strategies are just like the actual words we choose to get what we want, the tone of words that we choose, whether or not to have a conversation with this person first or that person first, whether or not to smile or be upset, whatever it is, those are all the kinds of elements that goes into the strategies that we use to get what we want. So let me give you another example. So um, when Scotty, my daughter, um, she's three, like I said, and she loves snacks. And if she's talking to me, her kind-hearted dad who loves her very much, and she wants a snack, then she'll often she'll she'll soften up a little bit, she'll smile really big, and then she'll ask me very sweetly for a snack. You know, this is strategy one, the sweet approach. And because it's 9 a.m. and she just had breakfast, I'll say. No, Scotty, you can't have a snack right now. But then immediately she switches to strategy number two, which is the wine and pouch. She slumps to the floor. She starts saying, I'm hungry. I want one. You know, strategy being sweet didn't work. Strategy one didn't work very well. So she tries out strategy two. And she tries to make it happen. Right? So it's easy to see in children the different strategies that they use. They get what they want. Um, as adults, we do some similar things. We're just a little bit more sophisticated in the way in which we approach our strategies. But that's what I mean by strategy. I think that's helpful for you to understand. This is what I mean by a strategy we use to get what we want. So foolish strategies, those are characterized by a few things. First, they don't factor God into their strategies. They don't factor God into their approach. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. This is because the fool does not really think that God is involved in the details of life. A fool's strategy says God's not real. He can be ignored. He doesn't really need to be considered in what we're doing right now. So that's the first part of a fool's strategy. Second is that fool's strategies are marked by a stubborn selfishness to get what I want. Proverbs 22.15 says this, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And that word for folly there, for foolishness, there, it's a stubborn selfishness. That's what it means, a stubborn selfishness. And all of us have this in our hearts. It's this native drive to get what we want when we want it. This is a marker of a foolish strategy. And part of parenting is training in children the wise strategies rather than foolish ones to get what we want. But that's the second part. There's a stubborn selfishness to get what I want. And third is that foolish strategies do not consider advice. Proverbs 12.15 says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Foolish strategies just don't consider other people's opinions and perspectives. They think that they know the best way to get what they want. So these are three of the things that make up a foolish strategy. In the first message in this series, Josh outlined five different fool types. And these are categories or patterns of behavior. They're strategies that we can commonly use in order to get what we want. What they actually are, those five different fool types, are five different Hebrew terms that in the English is just translated as fool. But in the Hebrew, there's layers of meaning to it and layers of descriptions. And so um, one of those that he highlighted, I'm going to use as an example to explain just what a foolish strategy looks like. So one of the fools that Josh mentioned was the easy way fool. The easy way fool has a pattern of laziness. He looks for the magic key to solve life's problems and difficulties. He often will lie in order to accomplish his goals. The easy way fool is passive in his approach to responsibilities. That's the easy way fool. 
And this strategy is probably best and most easily seen through a character on a TV show. Honestly, this character, this um, fool pattern comes up in TV shows all the time. But probably one of the easiest examples to use is Ray Barone from Everybody Loves Raymond. I grew up watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, and if you are not familiar with the show, Ray Barone is a sports writer. He's married. He has some kids. He also lives very close to his parents. He has a very overbearing um, mother-in-law. Um, and Ray basically seeks to go through life by avoiding responsibility as much as he can. He comes up with all kinds of excuses, which are actually just lies, in order to get out of having to take responsibility for himself. Um, It's pretty funny to see it happen on a TV show in that kind of a context, but sometimes it's just painful to watch how he just tries to slither around really taking responsibility for the things that he does wrong. Things work out because it's a TV show, but we know in reality... We know that this would be very damaging. This would lead to a lot of damage in life. So that's just one example of a foolish strategy, a foolish pattern. Doesn't consider God. Doesn't really take advice either. Um, the corrective or instructive advice of all kinds of people in the show for Ray. Um, and it's also stubbornly selfish to get what he wants, to really avoid having to take responsibility. That's a foolish strategy. Wisdom, on the other hand, though, is different. Wisdom is different. Wisdom actually brings about success. So let's consider wisdom as well. James three seventeen through 18, it describes the wise strategy in a very succinct way. So James 13, 3, 17 through 18, it says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This describes wisdom That comes from God. So let's look through some of these words that he uses to describe the wise strategy. We're not going to go into all of them now, but I'm going to highlight a few of them to help you understand what a wise strategy looks like instead. First, a wise strategy is pure. So pure, what that means is it means to be clean or holy or morally upright in motive and strategy. The goal and strategy that's used in wisdom ought to be right before God, ought to be pleasing to him. It's pure. Next is peaceable. Peaceable means that this is not a contentious goal or strategy, but it's actually one that promotes and encourages peace with others, harmony with other people. Oftentimes what creates conflict in our strategies or decisions, like we see later in James, is our warring passions and desires, our competing goals with one another. The wise strategy, though, is one that promotes peace as much as it can with other people. The next one is open to reason. People can ask me questions about my plan, about my strategy that I have, without me getting reactive to them. This one has been particularly convicting to me because there's been many times I know when I've chosen a decision or I made a decision and maybe I didn't have the purest motive um, with what it was that I was doing. And so when people begin to ask me questions about it, rather than have to just address the fact that maybe I wasn't pure in my motives, I would get pretty reactive to them, pretty unwilling to listen to them because I was really committed to going after my stubborn selfishness, the goal that I would really locked on already. So I wasn't open to reason for people asking me questions. But wisdom instead really is because it's focused not on my own goals, but actually on a real pure motivated goal that, that we're trying to accomplish. And so it's open to reason. And more can be said about each one of these things, but why strategies will filter through all of these words in these categories.
So what we've done is we've taken some time, just like Solomon, to evaluate and consider what's a foolish strategy and what's a wise strategy. And after he does this, he draws an important conclusion and one that I don't think will be a surprise to you. So let's keep reading. In verse 13, it says this, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. What his observation is, is that there's more gain in living wisely rather than foolishly. Things generally go better for people in life if they choose wise strategies rather than foolish strategies in this life. Wisdom has the advantage. Wisdom has the advantage. And our lives bear this out. When we've chosen the right goals and the right strategies to achieve those goals, then we know that things generally go better for us. We know pretty easily that life is hard for Ray Barone. If he continues that pattern of laziness, of choosing the easy way, things are just going to be difficult for him. They're going to be, he's going to deal with a lot of hardship. Um, and it's his own doing as to why he suffers so much difficulty. So we realize wisdom really does have the advantage. But before we keep going, I want you to pause to answer this question, which is this. Am I choosing wise strategies over foolish strategies now? As we just explained the difference between wise strategies and foolish strategies, are you choosing wise strategies now? Do we believe at Solomon at this point that wisdom really does have the advantage? Or maybe you're in a spot where you don't even really know if you're choosing wise or foolish strategies. So you really need to Take a moment to consider wisdom and foolishness. Maybe you've been living a copy and paste life where you haven't really been considering the strategies that you're using to walk through life. And so what we need to do is what you need to do is pause and reflect and ask that question. Are you choosing wise strategies right now? It's important to consider. But the passage, it actually goes on. And this is when it gets a little bit more complex. Remember, these are the reflections of an old, wise leader. His reflections are just very honest about life. And he shows us that while wisdom has the advantage, it's also just not quite so simple. So the next verse, it says this, And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. The same event that he's talking about here, which we know it's death. That's what he's referring to. The same event happens to the wise and the foolish person. So while wisdom has the advantage, there is a great leveling reality of death. If the wise dies just like the fool dies, and neither person is really remembered, then why is it worth it to be wise? This is a major tension point that Solomon is wrestling with. The reality of death calls into question just how important the advantage of wisdom is. This is because Solomon has identified another important reality. And that's this. Death has a grip on us all. Death has this grip on all of us. Whether we spend much time thinking about it or not, death really does have a grip on us all. And the grip of death can cause us to move to two different extremes. One extreme is hopelessness. Solomon, he went towards this. He, went, he said, vanity, it's meaningless. That was his cry. Let's look at verse 15. It says, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why then have I been so very wise? 
if the same fate awaits me or the person who is foolish, then what difference does it really make how I live? It was all a waste. It was meaningless. For those who are further along in years, it can be really natural to look backwards through life and evaluate asking the question, did my life have meaning? Did my life count for something? Did I make the right choices? For Solomon, he looked at his life, which had pretty mixed track record, and he asked, was it worth it if I just die like everybody else? Death can grip us in this way, and it can make us feel hopeless. There is just no point. For some of you, you may be earlier on in years, and while you may not feel close to death, the constant routine of daily mundane things can lead us to that same feeling of hopelessness. Clocking in at 8 a.m., doing another load of laundry, more dishes, more diapers, submitting another report, dealing with more frustrated customers, frustrated patients, listening to the same frustrating boss and the same frustrating coworker. It can just feel meaningless on the merry-go-round of life. It can feel hopeless sometimes. You can almost feel the grip of death tighten as we get stuck in some of those cycles and some of those thoughts. The other extreme is desperation. Life is short. I must get all I can out of life. One source that feeds this desperation that really comes from that grip of death, a reality that we all will die, is comparison. That leads to deep discontentment with our own lives. Social media can really quickly multiply this. We can feel the tightening of the grip of death, that grip, that feeling that we're going to miss out on something. When we see, you know, on social media, someone enjoying life to the max in this unreal way, whatever it is, we're pulled to copy and paste and do the same thing that they're doing out of desperation. We don't evaluate if it's wise or a foolish strategy. We just react because of the pressure of the desperation that comes, that causes us to make us make a decision like that. The grip of death, that can lead us to desperation or it can lead us to hopelessness. And what we need to do, though, in these moments is rather than quickly choose something to avoid and numb the uncomfortableness of the situation, we need to sit in the tension. This is what Solomon is doing. What I mean by sitting in the tension, what I mean is this. It's being willing to ask of God the hard questions that we're wrestling with us, that we're wrestling with. God is not afraid of our difficult questions. And he invites us to sit in the tension with him, with his word as the foundation for truth, to help us understand what it is and how to make sense of these things. So a really important question that I want to ask you is this, what tension points do you need to sit in right now? What tension points do you need to sit in that you're really wrestling with, that you're afraid to sit with God in? Maybe it's the new and this was the first message in this series. Maybe it's the new. If you're in your teens, you're earlier on in life, your, your 20s or even your 30s, it can be really tempting to chase after the new. Newness has a sense of a quickness to gratification or a quickness to status even. But it can also really cause us some damage. So maybe you need to sit in the tension of the new and ask God the question, God, am I just chasing after the next new thing rather than the thing that you really want me to focus on and prioritize now? Am I just chasing after the next new thing? Or for you, maybe it's pleasure. And this one can be very challenging. Um, the tension can be this, God, if I don't live for my desires, then won't I get ripped off in life? How can I know that my wants will be taken care of? 
And the point of this is not, I need to rid myself of all desires. This is not the point that I'm trying to make or even that Solomon is trying to make. Really what this is, it's an issue of highest priority. If I do not pursue my wants as my highest goal, then will I be okay? Will I be okay? Will I miss out on life? Or maybe it's advancement. We can be motivated to relentlessly achieve, to accomplish. And that drive can produce many, many good things. But at the same time, it can cause a lot of hardship and damage, as well as just personal discontentment. The tension may be this. For this is maybe this. You know, God, what is all of my achieving for? Am I trying to prove myself? Am I trying to gain status and accomplishments so that I can finally feel significant? Like I've done enough? Maybe that's the tension you need to wrestle with. Or maybe it's a legacy. If you're later on in years, your kids are grown, and you evaluate your life, and the question that's challenging to ask is, God, what do you want my legacy to be? God, what is my legacy that I'm leaving? And maybe your legacy is filled with regret, or maybe it's filled with pride. But no matter what, God can meet you here with grace. It's never too late to make your life count for the kingdom. You can still leave a spiritual legacy of blessing and fruitfulness. But we have to enter into that tension of asking the hard questions like, God, what do you want my legacy to be? What do you want it to be like? In all of these things, in all of these tension points, God meets us as we engage with him. And he meets us with grace and help. When we're willing to bring these to him with trust and submission, then he helps us to find grace as we are in need. But often we're just really afraid of asking these hard questions. I'm afraid of asking these hard questions. One of the encouragements I've experienced as I've read and studied this passage is that Christianity is not afraid of hard and difficult inquiry. Solomon asked some very honest, hard questions about life. And it's in the Bible for us to read. He asked some really tough questions. And often we're afraid because we don't know what the answer is going to be. We don't know if it's going to be the outcome we're really hoping it's going to be. And that can make it really challenging. That can make it really difficult. That can make it difficult for us to want to enter into the tension. And the pressure that the reality of our own death puts on us, that grip that it puts on us, that makes it even more difficult for us to be willing to ask these hard questions. So to help you, I want to give you a couple resolutions that will just hopefully help you have the courage to sit in the tension, to ask some of these really difficult and challenging questions. And these are not found right immediately in this passage, but they're found through the rest of Scripture as well as the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to give you two resolutions to help you have the courage to sit in the tension of whatever it is that God has brought up for you. So resolution one is this, our earthly death is not the end. That's resolution one, our earthly death is not the end. Mortality and death do act as this leveling instrument, but this life is not all there is. You can see this in two different places within Ecclesiastes. The first is in Ecclesiastes 3.11, which says um, that he has put eternity into man's heart. God has placed eternity into our hearts. There's already this reality that we have an understanding and longing for eternity within us. We realize that this temporary life is not all that there is. 
But at the same time, we live in a temporary state in life. But we just know that there's something more to life than just death. And just the fact that our muscles stop flexing, our lungs stop breathing, our blood stops pumping, and our bones break down. There is a spiritual, eternal reality, which means that our actions in life carry on into eternity. At the book, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion that Solomon makes is this. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. One of the answers to Solomon's frustration over the fact that um, death is a leveling factor for those who choose wise strategies or choose foolish strategies, is that all of us will give an account before God in eternity for what we do here and now. That the decisions we make now will actually impact eternity. So while on the surface it looks like the same fate happens to the fool as well as to the wise, that they both die, the truth is that God is real and he will evaluate each one according to his own works in this life. So that's the first resolution, is that our earthly death is not the end, but that we really do live on into eternity. This life is not all there is. And that brings us to resolution two. There's a scene from Jesus' life where someone someone dear to him, a man named Lazarus, has died. He goes to the tomb, Jesus goes to the tomb, and there he meets Lazarus' sister Mary, one of his followers. And she says to him, um, she comes to him and says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And she wept before him, as did others. And then it says in John 11, it says this, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And when it says deeply moved, it doesn't quite capture the full meaning of the original term in Greek. The Greek word carries this idea of anger and frustration. In fact, the message translation, another translation of the Bible, it says a deep anger welled up with him, within him, within Jesus. Because you see, death was not the intent for the people that God created in his image. When God made people, he did not intend for them to die. But because of our sin... All of us do. All of us do die. And it angered Jesus. It moved him. It troubled him. But Jesus' anger and concern and sadness did not end in sentimentality, but in action. Not long after this, Jesus submitted himself to the cruel and unjust authorities of the time. He knew what they would do. He knew what fate awaited him. But he willingly went forward. And they crucified him. They put him up on a cross to kill him. Jesus, the author of life, the one by whom all things were created, all things given life through him and for him, he died and was sealed in a tomb. But the grip of death could not hold the Son of God in the grave. On the third day, he rose in victory and in resurrection power and life so that we who are enslaved to death, who have the grip of death on us, do not have to be enslaved any longer. That same resurrection power that brought Jesus back to life, that actually now lives in us for those of us who have committed our life to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. He has forever broken the power that death has on us. 
so that we can now live in newness of life. Because of him, because of what he's done, we can say death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus breaks the power that death has over us, we no longer are enslaved to the hopelessness of life. Because we know that after death, we will be with God forever. It is both entirely meaningful and entirely hopeful because good things will come as we are with them. We are redeemed from all the things that we've done in life because of our trust and faith in him and because of what he's done for us. It also means that we're no longer enslaved to the desperation to get our fullest life from the here and now, from this temporary life. Because our fullest life will happen in eternity with God. That helps us to choose obedience or choose wisdom in the here and now. Because we know that when we do, we store up good things for ourselves in eternity. So here's the question again is, will you sit in the tension? Or will you settle for a copy and paste life? I encourage you, sit in the tension. Allow God to graciously help you to choose wisdom in every area of your life. There's a few next steps that I want you to consider today. Um, The first next step is this. Um, It's the sit in the tension. Pick an area that you identified that you need to bring to God and ask him, what does wisdom look like in this area? Ask him the hard questions. Maybe it's the new, it's the new thing, or maybe it's pleasure, maybe it's advancement, maybe it's your legacy, maybe it's something else that God is stirring up that you really need to ask him some of the hard questions and trust, turn to him and trust and submission and allow him to help you um, with that tension area. Or maybe another one is this, is to pursue wise strategies over foolish ones. That's another next step. Remember, wisdom has the advantage, both now and then also for eternity. Um, So pursue wise strategies over foolish ones. If you're in a situation and you need help figuring out what wisdom looks like in the situation that you're in, then what I would encourage you to do is to take a look at what the Bible has to say. Try to search in the Bible to find out what, what guidance the Bible gives about the situation or circumstance that you're in. And then get some input from a wise and trusted leader. Remember, a wise strategy really does consider advice from others. So pursue wise strategies over foolish ones. And the next thing you could do is to come back next week. Uh, we invite you to tune in again next week um, as we continue on in this message series of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so let me pray to close our time. God, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for all that Jesus has done for us to break the power that death has on us. We're grateful, Lord, that you allow us to bring these difficult questions to you, Lord, and you receive us with grace. Help us to approach these questions and these conversations, Lord, in humility towards you, Lord. And I just pray, God, that as the people here wrestle with some of these questions, would you answer them? Would you help them to see from your word what the truth really is and help them to take steps of obedience and wisdom, Lord, towards you? Um, So, Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.